1: This is Accelerating Innovation with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at T-Mobile.com slash now.
2: I've interviewed many successful people over the years, and one thing I find fascinating is many of them don't consider themselves business savvy. Take the owners of Tight Knit Brewing. They turn to Chase for Business for everything from banking and payment acceptance to credit cards and do all of it in one place with the Chase mobile app. And that's helped these brew-loving friends turn a passion into a business. Learn more at chaseforbusiness.com. Make more of what's yours. Chase Mobile App is available for select mobile devices. Message and data rates may apply. J.P. Morgan Chase Bank, N.A., member FDIC.
1: You know you've got a comeback in you. When you take the next step, you're going to make it count. For your career, for your family, for your life. You can earn a degree you're proud of with Purdue Global.
0: This is Talk Easy. I'm Sam Fergoso. Welcome to the show. Today, I'm joined by the founder of Well-Read Black Girl, Glory Enum. For the uninitiated, Well-Read Black Girl is a Brooklyn-based book club and online community that champions the work of Black authors. It was founded in 2015. In 2017, Glory launched a literary festival featuring appearances from Gabrielle Union to Michelle Obama. Then, in 2018, came her first anthology, Well-Read Black Girl, Finding Our Stories, Discovering Ourselves, which was published by Random House. At each turn, Glory has found a way to expand the vision and reach of Well-Read Black Girl. Now, after years of hosting conversations at their festival and on their Instagram page, Glory has launched a new podcast called Well-Read Black Girl with Glory Adam. Each week, Glory aims to bring readers and writers together by sitting with some of the best authors we have today. Her first three episodes are with Min Jin Lee, Tarana Burke, and Anita Hill. If you'd like to take a listen, you can find Well-Read Black Girl with Glory Adam on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you do your podcasting. Now, in the conversation you're about to hear, I wanted to sit with Glory to unpack the mission statement of her new show, the enduring influence of her parents, both of whom survived Nigeria's Biafra war, and the timeliness of the work she's doing today, especially in the wake of book banning inside classrooms and the polarizing conversations around critical race theory. Speaking of, We'll be having a larger conversation about erasure, whiteness, and black history with Dr. James Whitfield this coming Sunday, the 20th. Whitfield was a principal at a Texas high school, actually the first black principal in the school's history, who was then fired after being accused of implementing critical race theory into the school's curriculum. To be clear, he did not add CRT to the classrooms, but that didn't stop him from being terminated. We'll hear his story this Sunday on Talk Easy. I hope you join us for that. For today, here is our conversation with well read black girl founder, Glory Adam. I hope you enjoy. Glory Adam, thank you for being here.
3: Thank you for having me.
0: We have never met before. We're doing this over a Zoom-like recording. I've been told that you wake up every day between 7.30 and 8.00 a.m. And when you wake up, you begin journaling a little bit, writing out your notes for the day. I wanted to start here. What happened in the journal this morning?
1: Ah, that's such
3: a good question. So I've been really meditating on the word forgiveness, and I've been trying to just like really think about how I could forgive myself for like past mistakes or choices I made that might not have been the right choice at the time, writing what forgiveness looks like and how I can just be more self-compassionate because in my mind, I can be like really critical, a perfectionist at times. And I'm trying my hardest to move away from that kind of thinking, just like how am I forgiving myself and how am I being present? Because, you know, when you're thinking about something that happened like two days ago or two years ago, it doesn't give, allow you to celebrate like what's currently happening in your life. And I have so many good things happening, you know? That was what my journaling session was this morning
0: we're gonna get back to what you need to forgive yourself for but something good that's happening right now is this new program on pushkin called well-read black girl with gloria Adam. you called the podcast the literary kickback you never knew you needed so for those who haven't listened yet what is this show and why do we need it now
1: I would like
3: to think of this show as another way of like coming home to yourself and visiting all the amazing authors that maybe you've read in the past or maybe you haven't even encountered before. But it's just a celebration of their work and sitting with their journey into becoming writers. They are well-read Black girl book club alumni. So they have really intimate relationships with the community already. So once we get into conversation it's just like on and popping. Like we are talking and exchanging stories and really being vulnerable with one another. And that's like the part of the kickback because it's like you're a fly on the wall. Like, wow, like what are they talking about? And who are, are these people that
0: are on the show? It does seem like one of the reasons you've made this show is that Black women, as you write, define ourselves. We're not looking for anyone else to give us validation because we have one another we celebrate one another. We have a tenacity and grace that is unparalleled. Is that part of the thinking in making this show is to have that kinship as two women of color or or non-binary writers define themselves together?
3: Yeah, I mean, completely. I was exploring the stories that I read growing up and what gave me a lot of courage and allowed me to be a risk taker. Black women have a boldness about them. And we can really explore our vulnerabilities and our complexities in a world that doesn't always acknowledge that or give us hope. (sighs) To be quite honest, sometimes I feel like we're being discarded in a lot of ways. And so that validation and that uplift has to come from one another. And it has to be, it has to just be real. You know, you can't fake that like community building. And I don't think I would have gone as far as I have had I not had really like robust and and just like deeply felt relationships. You know, in my first anthology, in the acknowledgements, I like list all of the young women that came every Sunday to the book club, like OG members, like my friend Mavis and like, Like, people that, you know, you may never hear about, but they're my friends now. And they, like, held me down when this book club was only, like, 10 girls in a circle. And now it's, you know, this massive, like, movement. And I think that's what is so important, what, like, Black women do for each other. Like, we really, like, uplift each other and hold each other's hands through different experiences.
0: That feeling of being discarded that you're talking about, in the moment that we're in, we have... 36 states across the country that have introduced bills to take steps to eliminate critical race theory, restricting how teachers can discuss racism, sexism, issues of systemic inequality in the classroom. The books that you're promoting on your show, through your page, through your work, they're literally being discarded. Where are you at on this and how are you thinking about that?
3: In one hand... It feels so ridiculous to me that this is actually happening in this time and place when we have access to so much technology and knowledge and plain old facts that we're still debating about history. Critical race theory has been manipulated and co-opted by individuals that don't want to see it succeed. I mean, I'm just going to say it trolls But a lot of times, you know, it's just like they want to rewrite history and they want to make it sound as if Black people like have not contributed to the fabric of what it is to be an American. We are part of culture and we are are deserving of more recognition. Like, we don't need to have any more, like, this is the first Black person doing blank fill in the blank. Like right now, we're, we're having the big debate about who's gonna be the next Supreme Court justice. And the hope is Biden will nominate a Black woman. And it's like long overdue. It feels ridiculous to still be having these conversations and to be talking about these things. It's not discourse we're having. It feels like there's a feud happening between like right and left. And there's not like a middle space to even figure out like, why are we feeling this way? Why is everyone so afraid? I feel like everyone's like very much into like the fear. Does that make sense?
0: Well, the feud is like two people arguing over something different, each equipped with different facts. So there's a feud and an argument, but there's no central argument that we can even agree upon. Right. We can't even argue because we don't even know what the argument is.
3: Yeah. Again, so much of it is fact. and when we read, you know, work by Nicole Hannah-Jones and the, you know, the 1619 Project, and we revisit that origin story, these this isn't stuff she just, like, pulled out of thin air. There is, like, history and census and things that we can reference and cite, and that is why I'm so confused on how we're in this place, when we're, like, debating the truth in such a visceral way. I know what my truth is. I know what the facts are. I'm a student of history, and regardless of these policies and these things you can do to try to stop it. You can't stop history. You can't stop the facts. You can try to erase it and hide it. But like the truth always comes to light. And I do really strongly believe that. As cliche as it might sound, I think the truth will always prevail.
0: You called yourself a student of history. And I think you're bringing that kind of academic rigor to your podcast. Last year, in an interview with Essence, you said, I really want to serve as a conduit or even a midwife bringing these worlds together and use my talents to inspire and encourage future generations to do this work of archiving and reading and doing deep study and reflection. I'm mindful of not using the language of giving voice because the reality is everyone has their own voice. It is simply giving space. And that quote made me wonder about the crux of your show, which is, maybe not about giving voice to Black women and non-binary writers, but actually just giving them space. Is that a fair characterization?
3: Yes. I mean, I encounter so many very talented writers that are looking for just a way to break in. They want to be published, to have their works appreciated. They just want a little bit of opportunity. It's not their fault that they're not being seen. It's the systems, you know, and we have to like break the systems and we have to just allow for there to be more opportunity. We can be resources for one another. We can like share our value and show people how the publishing industry really works. And within the podcast, I'm hoping to really dispel some of these myths of what it means to be a writer. And, you know, maybe one person, you know, sits at their computer every day for 45 minutes and writes or and another person has like a house full of kids and they're writing on their yellow pad on the weekends or they have to go to a retreat or maybe one person wrote their book in two years and another person took 12 years. All of those things matter. And There's no one way because I feel like I'm continuing to learn and evolve into this space. A lot of times I still feel like an outsider, to be quite honest, but I'm watching and I'm asking for help. And I have tons of mentors and people that I can call on to say, like, is this the right way? Like, what do you think of this? Can you read this with me? Can you tell me about your experience? And all of those stories and all of that communication, just I go back and I share it. I want people to see that my journey has been completely all over the map, but I'm here. And if I'm here, I want to turn back and help someone else.
0: You've been talking about your winding journey to get here. Why don't we try to understand some of this? Because you're born in Arlington, Virginia. You're the eldest of three siblings. Your parents, survivors of Nigeria's Biafra War, they came to the U.S. in the early 80s, but you and your mother go back to Nigeria for preschool and kindergarten before returning to the States in the late 80s. It's here that I wanna begin because you've said the origin of well-read black girl comes from a place of longing and needing to see a positive reflection of myself. My mother experienced depression when I was growing up. She was an incredible mother, but at times she wasn't able to show up fully as herself. How did your mother's depression propel you into literature
3: with my mom she is such a beautiful person full of such light and joy and the moments that she wasn't herself they were really outside of her depression i mean that's a it's a really complicated subject because when you have someone that you love and you want to see them do well and they're suffering and then you're a young person witnessing this like you see your parents going through something it's hard to really reconcile all those things in your mind because you just, want, you just want your parent and you want them to guide you and give you advice and kind of nurture you. And I was in a really pivotal point in my adolescence where I was trying to figure out my own sense of identity and I was looking for examples. And when my mom wasn't able to show up for me the way that I wanted her to, I turned to books in the library, you know, stuffing tons of books into my backpack and looking for, like, photos of Black women and photos and like chapter books that would explain what it meant to be a young person and an adult. Like there's a great book by Farah Griffin that's called Read Until You Understand. And I constantly felt like I was like reading to understand myself and the people around me. And then I also struggled with the duality of being Nigerian-American. As you mentioned, both my parents are Nigerian. I was born here in the United States, but we would go back back and forth. I never felt like fully American enough or fully Nigerian enough. And there was this just weird dichotomy that I was like struggling with, where even my name, everyone tends to really be excited and and give me compliments because my name is Glory. And most think that it's for religious reasons. I'm actually named after my aunt who passed away. And Glory is a very popular name in Nigeria. It's like Kelly or Sarah of Nigeria. There's a lot of young women named Glory. So, you know, but, here in the united states like a unique thing like oh your name's glory like i've never heard that you know you go to lagos airport and say glory like 30 people turn around <laughs> you know it's like- it's not a it's not a big deal, but, but I was also trying to figure that out in a lot of ways. And the third thing to that is like my parents came here seeking their American dream in a lot of ways was were like they were trying to assimilate to American culture. I went through this phase of like not wanting to assimilate. I wanted to like know everything about Nigerian history and I wanted to know about the first president Azikiwe and I wanted to know everything and they were like, No, we are in the we are here now. You need to learn about the Civil War. War and Harriet Tubman and like, you need to like, we're here, like we're not trying to go back there. They wanted to separate in ways because they had intense trauma being through the Biafra War. And I didn't understand that. I felt they were like withholding some of what I wanted to know. So when they wouldn't answer my questions, I would turn to a book.
0: What were the early answers that you found in reading?
3: That's a great question. I mean, I discovered more about what it means to be Nigerian-American and how to hold both parts of myself in my hand and not shun away from one side. Um, One thing that, that I always wanted to, and I'm still trying to figure it out, like I, I don't I can't speak my native dialect, and I, I definitely cannot even, like, do a Nigerian accent. I wouldn't embarrass myself right now. But what I do appreciate is just the richness of my culture and the food and the music. And I visit Nigeria as much as possible. And although I can't speak the language, it is so, still, still part of me. So that longing has dissipated. It's like, I know it's part of me. I know it's in my bloodline. I'm so, like, proud of my ancestors, the ones I know and don't know. But I'm also also so proud to be American and to be a Black woman and understand all of the things it means to embody Black feminism and go to the university that shaped me in tremendous ways, Howard University. My father is also an alumni of Howard. Those experiences made me feel like I was on solid ground and it built my confidence. The questioning now is more out of curiosity and just wanting to be knowledgeable and like hungry for information. It is not coming from a place of self-doubt.
0: Growing up, I know you said that what you ended up having to do was mothering yourself, which comes from a passage in Sister Outsider by Audre Lorde. In it, she writes, "'Mothering ourselves means learning to love what we have given birth to by giving definition to, learning how to be both kind and demanding in the teeth of failure.'" as well as in the face of success, and not misnaming either, claiming some power over who we choose to be and knowing that such power is relative within the realities of our lives. Now that you're about to turn 40, you just had a kid of your own, you're writing a memoir about your family and childhood, what does that idea of mothering yourself mean to you?
3: I think so much of the mothering is made up of praise and reflection, being more gentle with myself, reflecting on the moments without being critical, especially as I enter this new decade, as I raise my son, I want him to be just so, I hope he's like me, like I hope he really, will ask a lot of questions and be curious about things and just say, why, why, why? And if I don't have the answers, I'm gonna point him to someone who does. Like I really want our households to be filled with stories and music and experiences. And I want there to be like a joy in everything that we do together. And I think, like, I am about to turn 40. Most people think I look a lot younger than I am. <laughs> so I'm excited about 40, you know? Like, I didn't even have, like, a real expectation of motherhood, really. I was just like, I don't know what this is going to be like, because I was so integral to, like, my siblings. I was very involved in, like, raising them and being with them. And and so I wasn't sure, like, how my mothering would show up with my son. But it's been so much fun. And I know that, like, the life that I have, it's a okay for it to make it up. I want to be fully in my living, and I just don't want to exist to kind of check things off a box. I want it to be just like an experience and we write it down and remember when we recorded my dad passed away in 2017 and one thing I'm so grateful that I did when I went to visit him in Nigeria I did a bunch of audio recordings and videos and anytime that like I miss him or I feel sad I like I pop it on and I was even able to share it with my son like I can like you want to see grandpa like let's play this video and you can like, hear him telling a story about who he was and just laughing like I miss his laugh so much oh I'm about to cry I just miss him. (laughs) And I'm just glad that I have, like, that audio to, like, play back. All the things that I'm doing, it's like, you can look back at them. You can look back at the books and listen to the audio and, like, be in that moment. There's something that's, like, really beautiful about listening to someone's voice. I'm sorry.
0: (laughs) Right, it's all right. When you thought of him just then, what came to mind?
3: I was really thinking about his laugh. My dad had, like, the best laugh. You know, it was just, like, his whole body would laugh and, like, he would kind of, like, Push his head back and, you know, it's just kind of like silly chuckle, you know? Like, I, I really miss his laugh, but I feel so fortunate that I have video and audio of him talking. I can hear it and I can kind of go back to that space. The voice is powerful, man. Like, when you lose someone that's like outside of their physical touch, I think you miss their voice the most.
0: Something you've been promoting for the last decade is for stories centered around Black women to be messy and idiosyncratic, and full of humanity. And I was thinking about that idea of mothering yourself. When I brought it up, you went to the positive side of that. But I have to imagine the other end is that you turn to books as a means of survival. You turn the books as refuge in the face of your mother's depression. And and I wondered, what did that look like?
3: Sometimes it could just be really hard to feel like no one else is going through this thing or no one else understands. And unfortunately, not a lot of people have access to therapy or someone to really listen to them. And when I was missing those things, that's why I would journal and I would read books. Like I read so much of Bell Hooks and she gave me a firm understanding of what it meant to be in solitude with yourself and the difference between being alone and lonely and how to negotiate the feelings of loving oneself and loving another, even as I entered romantic relationships. Like she was such a guide for me. And I will admit, like when I read those things, especially in college, I don't know if I always understood them immediately, but I reread and reread and then became courageous enough to like talk to other people and know what they were going through. And so that loneliness or that connection that like you're seeking, you can find it in the stories that feel and sound like you. The reason I talk about my Angelo so much is because I felt like she felt so familiar. I'm like, I know the sound of this woman's voice. It's like, it's my grandmother's voice. It felt just like a kinship. And once you recognize that, you can't, I don't know, you can't miss it. Like, you just want it again and again. And so I just continued to, like pull books that made me feel wanted and made me feel more secure. Maybe initially I was faking it a little bit. I was just trying to make it up. But then eventually it started to feel real and it started to, my voice got stronger and I felt like on solid ground, even though a lot of hard stuff was happening. And then I started to kind of see the patterns of my life too. Like, Something hard would happen and then something wonderful (laughs) would happen like in the same, (laughs) like it'd be like back to back. And I'm just like, what is happening? You know, think about my dad again, the month my dad passed away was the same month I got my book deal. I wanted to talk to him immediately. I wanted to tell him, but I also felt like he was the one that made it possible. I'm just like, I know you're up there orchestrating something, you know? Like, so I kind of see life in that way all the time. I'm like, hard things can happen and wonderful things always happening that way. I mean, it's happening now. Like, I'm, going through some hard things, but also amazing things are happening at the same time. So it's just like, that's life, you know? If you remain hopeful and positive without being like unrealistic, I'm definitely not promoting toxic positivity in any way, but I do see just like when things are difficult, being realistic, but also just having hope for something better.
0: We'll be right back after a quick break.
2: That's T-Mobile.com unconventional unconventionalawards. I'll save you a seat.
1: Small business owners, this one's for you. Chase for Business and iHeart bring you a new podcast series called The Unshakables. This one-of-a-kind series will shine the spotlight on small business owners like you, who faced a do-or-die moment that ultimately made their business what it is today. Join hosts Ben Walter, CEO of Chase for Business, Listen to The Unshakables now and learn more at chase.com slash business slash podcast. Chase, make more of what's yours. Chase Mobile App is available for select mobile devices. Message and data rates may apply. JPMorgan Chase Bank, NA Member, FDIC, Copyright 2024. JPMorgan Chase & Co
0: Of course, you mentioned, I Know Why the cage Bird Sings, which uh, I believe was your first book report in school.
3: It was one of them, yeah. <laughs> God bless my teachers, because I'm like, they're probably like, what is this girl talking about?
0: <laughs> but it's interesting, that experience is a kind of precursor to all the work that you would do and, and, and are doing now. What happened there?
3: One of my first jobs out of college, I was a reading instructor, and the school was named Maya Angelo Public Charter School. And so I had an opportunity to meet Dr. Angelo several times because she would come to the school to do like fundraisers and, and just help you know, encourage the students. And then when I was at Howard, I also saw her, she would come to speak. And I remember this one moment, you know, when everyone had disposable cameras, like that was just like the thing, like no one really had a digital camera or, or on their phone. So we tried to take a photo of my Angel with our like disposable camera and she was just not amused. She was like, what is this contraption that <laughs> you're trying to take a... She was like, please go find a real camera somewhere. Like, what is this like box? <laughs> she was like so unimpressed in the most elegant, graceful way, of course. But I just felt like I kept having this wonderful encounters with her work. And so even with that time where we're trying to take a picture of her, she ended up signing a book that I, I have in my house framed. It's just such a beautiful, her signature. Like I remember just like looking at just like the beauty of the lines and how she wrote her M's. And it just was just everything about seeing her and hearing her, reading her work, over and over and over again. I just maybe it was just by like osmosis. Like I just felt like I can do this too. Like I can emulate her vibe and her audacity and just like her energy. She was so like energy giving. I don't know. Have you have you listened to my angel's voice? Like just like the tenor of it is just so captivating, you know?
0: Many times.
3: Yes, yes, it's just all of that. And so I think I kept getting these signs And by no means was the sign very clear, like, you will start the well-read Black girl book club. (laughs) But it was more or less that if you want to live this life that this woman has had, and she's had many lives, you can do that too. You have to have a lot of hope, resilience, and you have to be able to take your pain and make it something greater than yourself. I have had a lot of painful moments, but especially when I think about my mom's depression and how it impacted our family. But in essence, like it's become part of me and transformed me. It's made me be a better listener. It's made me <laughs> acknowledge when other people are going through things because we are all going through things and have so much empathy for that. I might look like all like sunshine and rainbows on Instagram, but I trust me, I understand what it's like to be grieving and have loss and be in like, and just sit in your in, with your sadness in a way, but it's that sadness is not all of you. So like how to bring all of you to your life. And as I read all of my angel's work, like she just would tell you moment after moment where it'd be, I mean, the book starts out with her being raped as a child. How does one share that without, like, sitting in shame and fear and everything else? But she she walks away from that and she's like, this is what happened and this is how I overcame it. And then here are a million other things that happened to me. And I'm still a worthy and beautiful person. I, like, I ran with that. And I still do. It inspires me greatly.
0: Clearly, Maya's words have inspired you. But there's this passage in Sister Outsider that I want to go to. Again, quoting Audre Lorde. She writes... Anger is a passion of displeasure that may be excessive or misplaced, but not necessarily harmful. And true, sometimes it seems that anger alone keeps me alive. It burns with a bright and undiminished flame. Yet anger, like guilt, is an incomplete form of human knowledge, more useful than hatred, but still limited. Anger is useful to help clarify our differences, but in the long run, strength that is bred by anger alone is a blind force which cannot create the future. It can only demolish the past."
3: Any time we speak Audre Lorde's name, I just gotta chill because she is so present. Her thinking was so future forward, and that's why we come back to it again and again, because she understood the power of her words and the responsibility she had to herself and others right now especially as more writers are self-identifying as activists i think it's very important to be present in your work and be honest about the things that you want to address in the world because that anger and that desire are tied closely together as much as some people might want to just say like i'm a writer the reality is you are a Black writer. You're a person of color. Like, your identity, especially when you're marginalized, does speak volumes. And I think it's important to acknowledge that because I don't think we can know enough about the Black experience. What Audre Lord was speaking to is just, like, that expansiveness that happens when you are angry enough and frustrated enough to change things. And we need that anger. We need that, like, push into more futuristic thinking and innovation. You can't stop at the anger, but it is a good starting point.
0: And yet she's saying anger helps clarify our differences. But in the long run, being driven by anger alone is a blind force, which cannot create the future. And this is a moment where I think a whole lot of us are angry and we're starting to wonder, and what else? What do we do with it once we're angry? What's on the other side of anger? And I guess I'm wondering with your show, what do you want to address in the world?
3: I want to highlight how free and how liberating Black culture and expression can be. I want people to witness that awakening of being pulled into a work that you can't stop thinking about. That is why folks are drawn to James Baldwin. And we know we read Ta Nehisi Coates. Like, you want to be pulled in and you want to understand the magnitude of their brilliance. And I'm just all for it. I'm all for Black excellence and Black brilliance and just the beauty of our work. And if I can have an impact in changing what we say when we think of, you know, well-read or we think about what the literary canon is, I hope I have a hand in shifting that. So you will not only think about dead white men, (laughs) but you will also think about Jacqueline Woodson and you'll also think about Min Jin Lee. And you'll also think about just all these phenomenal women that are pinnacles. They really have studied language and they embody it and have brought forth so much creativity and brilliance. Like we need all of that. And I wanna be at the helm. Like I wanna stitch it together. Like I'm thinking of it as a beautiful quilt, you know, and you stitch it together and you put it on to make yourself feel warm and whole. Like I really do love to be that curator of ideas and curiosity. And reading for me is so much fun. And I want like future generations to experience that same kind of giddiness when they read Gwendolyn Brooks or Brit Bennett. Who, like All these people just deserve the recognition.
0: That feeling of warmth and wholeness, it's hard to come by, but it seems like it was something that you found as a kid when your mother would read to you after a busy day of work. And if I'm not mistaken, your earliest memory is of her reading to you. And I actually have a poem for you to read as we leave, if you want to do that.
3: Okay. So growing up, I absolutely loved poetry and I was watching the one and only LeVar Burton and he put this book on the screen called Honey, I Love and Other Poems by Eloise Greenfield. And I was like, mom, like we have to go, you know, in my like most excited, like six or I don't even know how old I was, probably like six or seven year old voices. Like we have to get this book, you know? Um, so she took me to the library and I checked it out a million times, like to the point where she was like, okay, we have to just get you your own copy. And I just loved, loved reading it because there were like these black and white pictures of these like beautiful black girls in it. And I don't think, but before then, I was like reading a lot of like Barracene Bears and a lot of books with just like animal characters, you know, Um, like most like little kids, like they're just like animals who talk. And this was the first time I like saw other black girls in a book. And I was just like, wow, like she looks like me. And I loved it. And and also like the poem just, they talked about like everyday stuff. It was like she was going to, to the store with her dad or she was like playing double dutch or just doing all these like very ordinary things. So I'm gonna read this poem here. Oh, this is so sweet. Love don't mean all that kissing like on television. Love means daddy saying, keep your mama company till I get back and me doing it. I love, I love a lot of things, a whole lot of things. And honey, I love me too. That
0: was great. Your mom would read that book of poetry to you before falling asleep. And I'm just trying to imagine the arc from that kid whose earliest memory is of literature to you now, an adult who's made a life dedicated to literature
3: For me, it feels like so many collected memories and ideas that came together from that first reading and that first understanding that language and words are powerful and they can make people feel things. And like reading does that for me. Like I read a certain sentence and I feel that tingle and I go with that. And I felt that when I was a little girl hearing that poem with my mom and I feel it now when I read to my son. And I want to be just emotionally in tune and aware of everything that I'm experiencing. And I want the reader to feel that too.
0: I feel like you've actually listened to the line that you wrote for your senior quote in your high school yearbook.
3: <laughs> what? What else? I can't even remember. I actually have my yearbook here. What did I say? <laughs> oh my God. Oh my God. I literally, I like... I made my mom bring my yearbook over to the house recently. I don't even think I looked at my picture because I was like, well, I don't know. I was like 17 and just, I don't know.
0: Do you want to look at it now while we're here?
3: I will. Let me find it. Oh my gosh. This is so wild that you brought that up because I I did have like a very deep, like Ralph Emerson-like phase where I was like, I'm going to go into the woods, <laughs> you know, and find myself. Shout out to Wakefield High School. <laughs> Let's read it. Oh, my God.
0: Put it on record.
3: I was an SGA representative. I was a youth educator, a cheerleader. And when I discover who I am, I'll be free.
0: If life is somewhat about constant self-discovery, are you comfortable not being entirely free?
3: My immediate answer is to say yes. I'm okay with the uncertainty. I'm okay with the flying and not knowing the destination because there's a freedom in that too. There's a freedom in just the not knowing because I don't have my life perfectly planned. I have some ambitious goals, some things I want to achieve, but if it doesn't go in a precise order, I'm okay with that. I'm okay with having the road be windy and unpredictable. It feels more exciting that way. Because I get to make it up. It's my life.
0: Well, thank you for sharing some of your life here with me. I wish you the best of luck with your program.
3: I'm very appreciative. And this has been awesome. So great to just like share memories and look back at high school and, and everything else. So thank you for having me.
0: Glory, Adam, anytime. our show. I want to give a special thanks today to Nicole Morano and of course, Glory Adam. You can hear the first 4 episodes of the Well-Read Black Girl podcast wherever you like to listen. To learn more about Glory's work, visit our website at talkeasypond.com. Once there, you'll find our back catalog of over 250 episodes. I'd recommend our talks with Nikki Giovanni, Morgan Parker, Gloria Steinem, Representative Ilhan Omar, Resmaa Manakum, Claudia Rankin, Ocean Vuong, Roxane Gay, Brittany Packnick Cunningham, and Questlove. To hear those and more Pushkin programs, listen on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you like to listen. You can also follow us on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram at TalkEasyPod, if you want to send in an email or a voice memo for our upcoming mailbag episode, you can send that to mail at talkeasypod.com. That's mail at talkeasypod.com. All we're looking for are comments, reflections, any questions you have for us, uh, really anything you'd like to share or hear more about on the show. The submissions so far have been great, but we're always looking for more, so please send that along to mail at talkeasypod.com. If you want to support our show by purchasing one of our mugs, they come in cream or navy, or our vinyl record with Fran Lebowitz. You can do so at talkeasypod.com/shop. If you want to support the show in other ways, the best thing you can do is share the show with a friend. The second best thing you can do is rate this podcast on Spotify, review the show on Apple Podcasts, wherever you listen. Reviewing the show on these platforms is still the best way for new listeners to find Talk Easy. Of course, this show would not be possible without our incredible team. Talk Easy is produced by Caroline Reebok. Our executive producer is Janixa Bravo. Our associate producer is Caitlin Dryden. Today's talk was edited by Clarice Guevara and mixed by Andrew Vastola. Music by Dylan Peck. Illustrations by Krisha Shenoy. Video and graphics by Ian Chang, Dara Gabrzak, Ian Jones, Ethan Seneca, and Layla Register. Special thanks to Patrice Lee, Kaylin Ung, Shiloh Fagan, Nikki Spina, and Callie Seringas. I'd also like to thank the team at Pushkin Industries Justin Richmond, Heather Fain, Mia LaBelle, Maggie Taylor, Maya Kane, Carly Migliori, Jason Gambrell, Jacob Weisberg, and Malcolm Gladwell. I'm Sam Fragoso. Thank you for listening to Talk Easy. I'll see you back here this Sunday for a special episode featuring Dr. James Whitfield. Until then, stay safe and so long.
2: Enter now at tmobile.com slash unconventional awards. See you there.
1: Smart journalism, fascinating topics. Words that describe CNN's podcast, The Assignment with Audie Cornish. Last year, the Army missed its recruitment goal. It had 65,000 spots to fill and came up 10,000 short of that target. Why is it so hard to recruit? How's the Pentagon responding? And how are the voices of service members on social media shifting the balance? Listen to The Assignment with Audie Cornish wherever you get your podcasts.